all cornered animals don't react the same. Listen, I am a woman of faith. I love I subscribe to the bar. This is not something that morning photo. The The season finale of Scam Kings starts right now. Bernard Lawrence Madoff was born on April 29, 1938, in Queens, New York. The second of three children, born to Ralph and Sylvia Madoff, Madoff had a completely unremarkable childhood, according to neighbors. The family was close-knit and loving, and financially, they did well enough. Ralph was an account representative, and Sylvia had her own stockbroking firm, although the company was never registered with the Securities Exchange Commission. Bernie spent his high school career at Far Rockaway High in Queens up until 1956. People close to him said that as a student, he was average, and he did not appreciate that at all. More than anything, he wanted to be on the honor roll and to be seen as an academic peer. This even though he was pretty popular and well-liked. He applied and was admitted to the University of Alabama. He initially told friends that his swimming prowess had earned him the position. But in reality, compared to Harvard and Princeton, the requirements to enter were minimal. Now, this is something of note, especially when we start looking at Bernie's big crime. Because what was the reason? The fact that he got into university, especially in that era, is something very prestigious. So there was no real reason to lie. But perhaps this goes back to him feeling as if he was less than if he wasn't an academic pair as well. For him, perhaps being popular meant very little in the big picture. That and the fact that he watched his father's side business fail utterly. More confirmation that he wasn't enough. He was determined to be seen as someone of import. In any event, he started at Alabama and stayed for one year before transferring to Hofstra University, where he studied political science. He did go to Brooklyn Law for a year, but eventually left to start his investment securities firm, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, in 1960. This was a company that started off trading in penny stock, stock that cost less than one US dollar, before eventually expanding into the company that we all knew it to be. He said that he made the money that he used to start the business, around $5,000, working as a lifeguard and installing sprinklers. The business operated for two years before a downturn in the stock market found him in some trouble. His father-in-law at the time had to bail him out. Further reinforcement. Bernie continued to push for excellence and recognition among his peers in the stock market, although they weren't really eager to let this stock vagrant into their circle. You see, Bernie and his firm would trade stock that no other reputable stockbroker would dare to and although his peers found it deplorable, this was how he was able to build his customer base. 
However, true success came only around the 1970s when he and his brother Peter built and developed the technology that would later come to be known as the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotations or the NASDAQ. It was the answer to the New York Stock Exchange and its old school way of floor trading, taking the process digital. He served as the chairman of the establishment in the years 1990, 1991, and 1993. He was making hundreds of millions of dollars per year through the processing of NYSE's order flow by the 1980s. The anticlimactic part of this story, believe it or not, is the scheme itself. Madoff conducted a simple Ponzi scheme. The long and short of his story was that he was skimming money from new investors to pay old investors. And honestly, you can stop the podcast here. But just know that you won't hear him from me for eight weeks. I'm not trying to tell you what to do though. <laughs> if you do stay, I have to warn you that a lot of this is investment googly goop. So I'm going to be oversimplifying the story so that you can generally understand what is going on. The long vision. Bernie once said that the scheme itself started around 1991 but former associates, and later the court, deemed that it was much earlier than that, perhaps as early as the 70s. There were so many legal operations interlocked in the scheme that no one noticed the big picture. Madoff claimed that he was using a method called split-strike conversion, which is, in the simplest sense, where you buy a group of stocks, specifically from the Standard & Poor's 100 Index, to keep them all just to time the opportunity for resale at a price that you choose. To this day, this is very much a legal way of stock trading, thanks to Madoff and his reputation in the stock world as a giant in the trading community in the 1980s and 1990s. When he first explained to the world how he made his riches, everyone kind of just accepted it as gospel that this man knew what was up. He did help invent the Nasdaq more or less, so why couldn't this pass, right? He explained that he had been doing it personally and had received returns between 18 to 20% against a market whose average return on investment at the time of his success was around 16%. With numbers like that, it wasn't very hard for persons to want to lock into his idea. Note as well that a typical Ponzi scheme promises returns of 20% or more, which should have clued people into exactly what Madoff was into. But again, a mix of his winning personality and huge profits helped blind people involved to the strangeness of the operations. He would also occasionally turn would-be investors away initially so that he could funnel the money into the top of his sordid pay pyramid. All this while putting money away in a regular regular bank account where it accumulated to hundreds of millions deposited and saved. What helped hide the scheme as well was the consistency of payments. He paid on time, every time, which, believe it or not, is not natural in the slightest. The market is too dynamic to have consistent payments every single period. It's just not how it works, unfortunately. So that is how he made his money. Mind you, he was still making legitimate money with the other branches of Banal El Mara Securities that were being run by his two children, Mark and Andrew. And he was doing extremely well. We're talking money for generations after him. So it wasn't that he was in trouble financially, but even after being incarcerated, he couldn't say why he did it. 
because he admitted that he was well off through the legitimate means of his business. Either way, he was able to continue the scheme for years upon years undetected. Well, maybe undetected isn't the best word, more like unacknowledged. It is said that over the span of 16 years, the Securities Exchange Commission conducted investigations as a matter of business at least eight times, finding no evidence of wrongdoing whatsoever. One of the first instances where Madoff was investigated was in the year 2001. This was triggered by financial analyst and portfolio manager Harry Markopoulos, who worked for a rival firm of BLM Securities. Markopoulos was instructed by his superiors to come up with a strategy that could mimic the operations and success of Madoff's firm. It was in examining Madoff's alleged operations that Markopoulos was able to ascertain that Madoff was full of crap and that he was involved in a next-level Ponzi scheme. He decided to bring this to the attention of the SEC in the form of a report 17 pages long, detailing exactly how Madoff was defrauding his clients. Nothing came out of what was a comprehensive layoff of Madoff's wrongdoings, and for the next seven years, many experts would come forward to question the legitimacy of Madoff's operations. Of course, and again, the money was coming in oh so sweetly, and everyone was distracted by Madoff's standing in the community, allowing him to get away with much more than he was supposed to get away with. So what we know now is Madoff was lying and stealing from his clients through his high-level Ponzi scheme, and when people discovered this, no one took the allegation seriously, even in the face of facts. So how was this madness stopped? Well, strangely, and ironically enough, the devil died by his own hand. Very much like... Okay, let's not go there. It's the last episode of the season, so I'm going to play nice. Read between the lines though. But it did take a word directly from the horse's mouth to evoke a response towards the scheme. As you know, Ponzi schemes eventually come to a crashing halt because they aren't sustainable and eventually money streams, that is, investors, dry up. The thing with Malov's scheme was that there was a legitimate business happening as the front, uncharacteristic of a Ponzi scheme. But that's how he got sunk. September 15th, 2008, the day that the business world will never forget. The Lemon Brothers filed for bankruptcy, and this event became the peak of the global economic crisis. Businesses all over the world, government and private owned, were finding themselves in great difficulty due to the 504 point drop in the Dow Jones. Everyone became scared and to save themselves, wanted to pull their money out of various funds so that they couldn't lose. The thing is, the way Madoff's schemes worked was that he paid the top and made the bottom half invest on his behalf. It was strategically separated so that he could buy himself time. However, time had officially run out for Madoff. The investors were requesting their money back and Madoff didn't have it. Out of the millions that he stashed away, he had 13 million left to pay off requests of over 105 million. After fruitless efforts to keep the business afloat, inclusive of taking loans from associates, Madoff decided to confess his crimes to his sons. On December 10th, 2008, he told his sons that he, quote, was finished and gave them the entire rundown of the position of the company. His sons were devastated and made the decision to go to the police. On December 11th, police showed up at the apartment of Bernard Lawrence Madoff and arrested him on federal crime charges. The list of conspirators is lengthy 
and includes his sons, even though Madoff made it abundantly clear that he acted alone. The depth of this case is black hole-like. The damage that Madoff caused still affects persons today. Millions of dollars are still owed to thousands of victims. This, even though the man that caused this pain no longer draws breath. It destroyed multiple lives, including Madoff's own. Both of his children are dead. Mark took his own life in 2010 because he couldn't bear the shame of his father's crime, while Andrew passed away in 2014 after a battle with cancer. The only reason that I'm not going into much more detail is because I want us to understand on this the final case of season one, the details of what is causing these shock factor stories. Sure, it would be exciting to focus on the pain that Madoff caused, but this show isn't about promoting horror porn. Context is integral to the chair-jerking moments that each and every story that we cover here on Scam Kings has so that we can walk away informed and have those important conversations. Conversations that can start to eventually prevent instances that we cover from happening ever again. And that is what I want you to focus on today. Bernie Madoff was a horrible person, as was Billy McFarlane, Justin Zakur, Christine Daniel, Robert James Patrick, Charles Ponzi. They broke the trust and ruined the lives of so many persons just for their personal enrichment, consequences be damned. We talk about them so that we can stop copycats in their tracks and better protect ourselves against people who only think of themselves. What is more justice than that? Bernie Madoff was tried in 2009 and sentenced to 150 years in federal prison. Not unexpectedly, it is in prison where his life came to an end this year. Bernard Lawrence Madoff passed on to the next world on April 14, 2021, leaving his remaining victims to pick up the pieces of their lives day by day and us to pass on the story. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of season one of Scam Kings. I wish to thank you profusely for your support via your downloads and listens. I'm honored to have regaled you with these tales of greed and selfishness. And I'm pleased that if I've done nothing else, I have armed you with information to challenge something, even if it's yourself. God willing and sparing, I will be back in November to do this shindig all over again. Until then, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, be with you all. Thank you. Thank you.